have a, a handout for you tonight. So if I could have two or three of the fellows come up and uh, pass these out, that'd be great. <clears throat> as soon as they get the doors closed and locked. Oh, you're not locking. Okay. Come on up. One church I pastored, we had a man come and visit the church. He was in his 40s in his entire life. He had never set foot inside of a church. He came in and he sat down and church was about to start and he looked back toward the door and there were two of our men were standing back there like this. He said, they're not going to let me out. Yeah, Tom never did accept the Lord while I was there. I trust he has since, I don't know. We're not going to lock you in tonight, but we're just uh, delighted that you are here. We're going to be going back into the book of Acts. And as I've been thinking about the weather this week, like you, there was something that came to my mind. Do any of you remember the old poem about Casey at the bat? Mighty Casey at the bat. That poem about baseball was written back in the 1800s. The last paragraph, the last stanza goes like this. Oh, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville, for mighty Casey has struck out. Somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. But in Ohio... An interesting year. It's been an interesting spring. Just whatever you do, don't put your snow shovel away. You mo most of you probably have heard that Minneapolis got 15 inches of snow yesterday and last night. Good for them. All right. Well, we've been going through the book of Acts. We have gotten a good start uh, into chapter 6. And tonight we're going to be picking up in chapter 6 and moving forward over the next four sessions together. We're going to get through the end, uh, through the uh, part of chapter 9, up to chapter 9 and verse 31. So I wanted to take a few minutes here at the beginning of the hour and, um, and, and recap a little bit, give a little bit of an overview of the early part of the book of Acts, give you a little bit of a handle on a very simple outline of the book of Acts that I think Luke himself gave us in chapter 1. And then we, tonight we will look at Acts chapter 6 and 7, which is really one event. Uh, the, the part that we're going to look at tonight is the uh, detaining of Stephen and his examination, his, uh, his uh, inquiry before the council, the Jewish council, and ultimately ending by the end of chapter 7 in his death the first martyr of the church. But on the sheet that I've given you, um, at the top of the page, I reprinted Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Luke's words, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and even to the utter remotest 
parts of the earth. The King James still comes out sometimes when I'm reading a verse. Even to the remotest parts of the earth. So the first three, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, are all fairly local to the people that are receiving this instruction. This is the Lord Jesus Christ himself speaking with his apostles, with his disciples there, just before his ascension. The last instructions that we have in the book of Acts from the Lord Jesus Christ himself to his disciples. Jerusalem, the city, Judea, the region in which Jerusalem was located, Samaria, the neighboring area to the north of Judea, and then the rest of the earth, the remotest parts of the earth. So the Lord both gives his disciples instruction and I think gives us a very simple uh, outline for how the church is going to go, how it's going to move geographically outward from Jerusalem as the center. So first of all, beginning in Acts chapter 2 on the day that we call the day of Pentecost, and uh, the day of Pentecost happened every year. It was a Jewish festival. It was an annual event, but it was on this particular year right after the ascension of Christ that the church was born. The Holy Spirit came down and the church was born. And immediately there was a witness throughout the city of Jerusalem, probably tens of thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of people heard the gospel preached, many of them in their own dialect, their own language from home, as the, uh, the Spirit of God caused some of the believers to speak in other languages that they had never studied. As we go through the first seven chapters of Acts, the primary focal uh, work of the church is in the city of Jerusalem. Now, some argue uh, a little bit about the the movement of the church outward because when we come to chapter 8, next week uh, in the evening, we're going to look at the persecutions that came, Saul's part in that especially, and the scattering of the church in chapter 8 and verse 1. There are people who teach that up until Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, when God scattered the church through persecution from Stephen, that the church has basically been disobedient to the command of Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. That they have been stuck in Jerusalem, they have been staying in Jerusalem with the, with the idea that uh, the church knew they should go outward but did not. Of course, the text never tells us that that's actually the attitude that they have. Uh, My own personal opinion is that God simply used the persecution to lead the church to the next step, that they had to mature and grow to a point where they were ready to step out and go to the next place. The other factor is that I also don't think that the gospel was only in Jerusalem for two reasons. Um, When on the day of Pentecost, people heard the gospel preached, there were gathered in Jerusalem hundreds of thousands of Jews from all over the Roman Empire. Many of them heard the gospel preached on the day of Pentecost. They heard it testified by the believers that were speaking in other dialects and languages. And I can't believe that all of those people that heard and believed stayed in Jerusalem. I suspect, the text does not say this, but I suspect that at least some of them had to make the journey back home and get back to whatever business and other obligations they had in other parts of the Roman world. 
The other thing that I think is, is, uh, indicates this is in chapter 6 and verse 7, which is where we pick up to begin tonight. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And this takes us into the next step, the witness of the gospel in Judea. Not everyone who came to Jerusalem and who lived in the area lived in Jerusalem. Many of them would have lived in areas around. You remember uh, the two disciples who walked with the resurrected Christ on the road to Emmaus, that's seven miles away. People made a seven or ten mile journey and thought nothing of it. Uh, They could walk seven or eight miles in in an hour and a half, two hours at the most. Remember, those men walked the seven miles and then turned around and ran all the way back to Jerusalem when they figured out that it was Christ they had been talking to. So this kind of distance was nothing. So I suspect that these people who have heard in Jerusalem and are gathering in Jerusalem to be part of the teaching of the apostles also live in the environs around Jerusalem in the area of Judea. Um, The second thing in that verse, in verse 7, is that a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. I love that. A great many of the Jewish priests have become obedient to the faith. And what we understand from the priesthood, if you remember the story of Elizabeth and Zacharias, when Zacharias was at the temple and and saw the vision and received the information from the angel that his wife was going to conceive, he did not live in Jerusalem. Most of the priests of Israel did not live in Jerusalem. They would come to Jerusalem and serve a course of time, and then they would go home. And so I suspect that some of these priests are taking the gospel out with them once they've come and understood the gospel and they've been saved. So the gospel, I think, even though the text does not go into detail, I think the gospel is gradually starting to spread outside of Jerusalem. But in the text of Acts... The focal point for the first seven chapters is the city of Jerusalem. So you have that outline there on that first page, Witness in Jerusalem and Judea. I've given you some other passages there uh, and an expanded uh, development of that. Samaria is very definitely reached by chapter 8. We will see that next week if it's not reached before that. As they're scattered in chapter 8 and verse 1, we find out ultimately that the church begins to scatter to the four corners of the globe. And the rest of the book of Acts gives us the detailed accounts of how Paul and Barnabas uh, helped spread the gospel to the other, other parts of the Roman world. It's very interesting that the book of Acts does not follow the other disciples. We're told that Thomas made it as far east as India preaching the gospel. The book of Acts doesn't cover all that was going on. It is a representative history so that we see what God was doing in a general sense. So there's an outline of the book of Acts that uh, hopefully will uh, be something you can remember, and it helps simply organize it in our thinking. Then in the next section, I've given you the content of Acts chapter 1 through 9 by chapter, just kind of some brief headings of some of the major events. I'm not going to go through that tonight, but I just thought it might be helpful to you in, in just reading, you can read through that and have the, the gist of what's going on in the book of Acts in just a few paragraphs there. Then on the inside of that page that I've given you, on the right-hand side, is uh, what we're going to try to get covered in our next four times together, starting tonight with Stephen's arrest and trial, 
And going through the month of May, we have the business meeting coming up. We have a couple of Sundays in which we have no evening services. And um, so that, that's the plan. You can let me know later whether it worked. <laughs> Sometimes when I'm preaching a series like this, I have to go back and figure out where I left off and where I'm starting up. And, if, and sometimes if I don't write it down in the notes, I don't remember how far I got. That's probably not the only reason I'm starting to repeat myself in life, but it's, uh, that's one. So let's go to Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. If you're not there yet, uh, we want to pick up there and go through Acts chapters 6 and 7 tonight. The, the final ministry of Stephen upon this earth. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it, in life, in our churches, in God's work, God does not give all of us the same amount of time on earth to serve him. Now, as you and I look at a, a man like Stephen, we don't know a lot about him, but we find out he has a very powerful ministry. He, he is a powerful servant of God ministering the word to people. Now, if you and I were in the management of this thing, we would say, let's keep him around for a while. Right? He's the first one God takes home as a martyr. Go ahead and scratch your head. I don't have the answer. Some of the best men I've known, God took home early. And I don't believe it was because of sin. It's a mystery. I'm glad God knows what he's doing. You can be glad I'm not in charge. So uh, we are not going to take time to read the text of chapters 6 and 7. I'm going to let you do that on your own if you haven't already. I'm just going to walk down through some of the events that have happened. In chapter 6 and verse 7, we've already read the report that the word of God continues to increase or spread the church is developing. The number of disciples is increasing. The disciples themselves are growing, as we've heard reports earlier in the book of Acts. A great many of the priests have become obedient to the faith. That is a joyful thing. That had to cause no small ruckus in the Jewish temple. <clears throat> okay? Imagine that. What, what it was like in the temple when some of the priests started witnessing to some of the other priests in the temple. You suppose there was a few hot discussions going on in the temple about that? Sometimes you have to let your sanctified imagination just think about that scene. That's, that's pretty phenomenal. Surely the Jews that didn't believe didn't like that any more than they liked it when Jesus came into the temple and preached. Well, then we have a transition to, in verse 8 to the man named Stephen. And we have a transition without any transition at all. You know, it just jumps. It just completely changes the subject in verse 8. And Stephen, who has been mentioned earlier in the chapter, he's one of the men that uh, we use the word deacon, a servant of the church. He was one of the seven chosen by the church to serve tables, to make sure, to oversee at least the serving of tables, to make sure that the Grecian Jewish widows uh, were taken care of as well as the Hebrew Jewish, uh, the Jewish Jewish widows, if you would. 
So Stephen, described here in verse 8 as full of grace, full of power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, he is not called an apostle, but he was gifted by the Lord in some amazing ways, some very special ways. He was able to uh, do great wonders. They're not detailed. Signs, this would be healings of, of some sort that he was doing. doesn't say what it was. <clears throat> but in doing that, he gets the attention, in verse 9, of some men from the synagogue of the freed men from various places around the Roman Empire. These are people who have traveled to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship. Jews came from all over the Roman Empire. For some of these people, it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to make this trip. They had to save money for years to be able to make this trip. Other people that were more wealthy perhaps could make the trip more often. But here are men from different parts of the Roman Empire. They are Jews who are members of this synagogue of the freedmen, they're Jewish people. They rise up and they argue with Stephen. Very interesting, because the other apostles are still in Jerusalem. Why aren't they arguing with Peter or James or John or some of the others? They're arguing with Stephen. Stephen has become a, an outspoken spokesman. He's also out there doing these wonders, so he's kind of got a target on his back. I love what verse 10 says. They were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. When we share the gospel with the world, the world is not going to understand it. Many times the world will not like it. And they think we are closed-minded and ignorant people. But we can speak with wisdom and truth and share truth with people who may have, they may be highly educated people, but they do not get it. They do not see. They do not see the spiritual realities and truth of the Word of God, and they are not able to cope with the wisdom with which Stephen is speaking. And so they took a typical approach of the world. If they cannot understand what you're saying, if they don't like what you're saying, they just get rid of the messenger. So they attack, they go on the attack, <clears throat> and they secretly induce men to say false words against Stephen, blasphemous words, uh, accusing Stephen of saying blasphemous words. And so they conjure up, they, they stir up a crowd. In verse 12, they stirred up the people, elders and scribes, and, and so they, they, they arrange to get some guys to bring false witness, and then they go over to the leaders of the Jews who were always easy to stir up anyway. Nothing has changed in the Middle East in thousands of years. Everybody's easy to stir up. And, and the combination of people bringing false witness and the Jewish leaders stirred up, they come in and they grab Stephen and drag him to the council. It's what it says, literally. They drag him away, in verse 12, to the council. So in verse 13, they put forward false witnesses. So at some point, these men from the synagogue are still involved, but at some point it transitions to probably the council itself being 
the ones who were in charge of this inquisition. They put, him, they put forward the false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs of Mo, which Moses handed down to us. Now, whether Stephen was repeating what Christ had said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, as a reminder of the prophecy of Jesus' resurrection when he's preaching Jesus' resurrection, or whether he has reminded the, the, the Jews that if they don't come to Christ, God will judge them and he will tear apart stone upon stone from the temple, which is what Christ said also in uh, Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25. So at some point in time, Stephen has probably mentioned the judgment of God or the statement of Christ. It's being twisted here uh, against him. And also, no doubt Stephen has taught the people and preached somewhere along the way that Christ came to fulfill the law, so we do not have to just keep the law. We're not here to keep the law. We're here to trust Christ. We're here to come to Christ and be completed in Christ. Christ fulfilled the law. He paid the price. There's no righteousness in the law. The righteousness is in Christ. Whatever he's preaching, it includes their hearing him say, we're getting rid of the law. Well, you don't say that to a Jew without an argument. Even today, if you have an opportunity to witness to a Jewish person, don't attack the law. The law was given by God. It was righteous. Don't attack the law. Find other things to uh, commend to them a further consideration of all the prophecies of the Old Testament about who Christ is going to be, who the Messiah is going to be, and point them in that way to the fulfillments. But we don't, it, it, it's, it's like talking to anybody about the religion they have right now. We're not here to argue with them about their religion. We're simply here to share with them the fullness of, of the truth of Christ and what he has for us. A lot of people get turned off when you attack their religion. We don't need to do that. We have something better anyway, but we don't need to tell them. You know, we don't need to turn them off. We just need to give them the truth and to let them get that thirst and hunger for the truth that only God can give them. So these are the accusations. They're false accusations. And, and let me stop right there and carry over an application that we'll see, we see over in 1 Peter, where our Sunday school class is going through 1 Peter right now. Peter basically said to the church, live in such a way that if anyone brings an accusation against you, they have to make it up. Live in such a way that no one can find something to accuse you of. They have to bear false witness. And that's exactly what they are doing here. So they have these false witnesses. And, and, and this is going on. I can imagine that this is a, a noisy room. This is a heated discussion. This, the, the, you, you have to put yourself in the Middle Eastern context as you're reading the book of Acts and these early chapters. These, these are Jewish people arguing, okay? This is a, this is a trial. This is not a group of, of Germanic Western Europeans sitting down and having a calm discussion as a board meeting. This is a group of Middle Eastern people, and some of you know some Middle Eastern people. 
and what they're like when they get excited about things. And, and that's what's going on in this text. And in the middle of that, as that's all going on, suddenly something happens in the room. And the last verse of the chapter says this. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Now, I don't know what that looks like. I assume it, and maybe, maybe his face started to glow with the glory like Moses did when he came down off the mountain. Whatever it was, they looked at Stephen, and it's like, whoa. Now, wouldn't you think maybe the trial would stop right there? And, and the judge or the chairman would whack the gavel down and say, case dismissed. We don't know if there was a long pause. We don't know what people were saying. But it says, fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. So now all of a sudden, everybody in the room is staring at Stephen. Even just brought false accusation against the guy who now looks like an angel. Wouldn't you think you'd just kind of go home? Quit while you're ahead? Well, before you get any farther behind. <clears throat> now, I love the opening of chapter 7. <clears throat> and the high priest said, Are these things so? You say to a preacher, do you have anything to say? Ask a politician, could you share a few words with us? <laughs> Give Stephen an open door to defend himself and explain what he was teaching? Why, sure! I'll take that opportunity. Now, I wonder if his face was still glowing as he started to preach or whatever it was doing, whatever was going, I'm wondering if that appearance continued as he preached. Now, that would be another awesome manifestation, wouldn't it? Do you, do you think we should listen to this guy whose face is glowing like an angel, or should we reject what he's saying? Pretty amazing. Whether it was still glowing or not, they obviously should have been paying attention because of that manifestation. I believe it was God manifesting his approval upon Stephen before those men. This was God's witness about this man against the false witnesses that were against this man. Isn't that amazing? How God manifested himself in that room and bore witness of Stephen and the validity of his message. An amazing, amazing thing. Well, in verse 2, beginning in verse 2, Stephen then grabs a hold of the opportunity to preach to these people. 
So you are now standing in front of the foremost Jewish body in the world. You're standing before the Jewish council at Jerusalem made up of all of the highest officials of Judaism from the high priest and the temple administration and whoever else was included in all that. You're talking about standing in front of the PhDs of the PhDs. And Stephen does not hesitate one second to open his mouth and declare to them the truth. Now, for those of you that took a GLBI class a while back on preaching narrative passages of Scripture, this is a great place for you to go and study that. Uh, in fact, the book of Acts has several sermons that are based on narrative structures of Scripture. This is a narrative of the history of Israel. Basically, Stephen reviews the salvation of Israel. He follows the same pattern that Peter uses when he preaches in the book of Acts, early in the book. He And Paul, later on, when he stands in Jerusalem and gives the same testimony to the Jewish leadership later on, decades later, Paul uses the same format. Because the one thing the Jews would listen to they would listen to you telling them the wonderful things God has done for them in the past. You might want to tuck that in the back of your mind and keep it in mind when you're talking to someone who's Jewish. Talk to them about all the wonderful things God has done for them in their history. They're, they're, they're some of the most amazing things in all of history that God has done for them. And that's exactly how Stephen starts out. So in verses 2 through 8, he talks about the providence that God demonstrated through Abraham, how God supervised and superintended Abraham coming into the land and gave him the land, promised it to him for his descendants. Beginning in verse 9 and down through verse 16, he talks about how the patriarchs uh, were jealous of Joseph, That the patriarchs being there, the other brothers of Joseph, the ten of his brothers who sold him into slavery in Egypt, and yet God meant it for good. So we have here a recounting in the first few verses, in the first 10 verses, basically the entire book of Genesis. And then he transitions uh, into talking about the book of Exodus and following. In verse 17, he begins to uh, talk about um, the time when the people of Egypt were oppressed into slavery because their king arose who knew nothing about Joseph. He's quoting from the book of Exodus in chapter 1. And so Stephen is walking down through the history that these men know very well. And, and he's getting them to go back and think over the history of Israel. And, and, and his, his plan of approach here seems to be that he's going to get them to go back and recall all that God has done for them and the position they have had in Israel but the stinger is he's going to remind them that his forefathers rejected God back then, and they're doing the same thing now. So that's what got the Lord Jesus into trouble with these guys. And, and Stephen's not going to end up much differently at the end of the day. But it's the truth. And so this is where he's going to go with this. So he talks about God's providence through the life of Moses. This goes from verse 17 all the way through verse 
43. And we're not going to take time to read down through this tonight, but if you were to take time to read down through it, we, we find some interesting things in here that the book of Exodus doesn't even tell us. I love that about the Word of God. We can go to the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 and find out some things about the patriarchs that Genesis and Exodus don't tell us about. And so we find the same thing here. But it, it coincides completely and accurately with everything that the books of Genesis and Exodus tell us in the past. But I want you to notice what he does in verse 35. He begins to point out to them that their forefathers, the Jews of the past, rejected God in the past. Verse 35, this Moses whom they disowned. The Jews loved to claim Moses. They loved to identify with Moses. And he's reminding them that they disowned Moses. They rejected Moses, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush? This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Deuteronomy 18, one of the most well-known prophecies of the Old Testament to every Jew. And every Jew who knows the Old Testament scriptures to this day believes that there is a prophet who is coming who is greater than Moses. They believe that because Moses said so. But Moses was talking about Jesus. And most Jews today don't believe that is what Moses was talking about. They believe there's someone besides Jesus who is coming who will be Messiah. But he's setting them up to be able to remind them that Jesus is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. So verse 37 began, this is the Moses who said, verse 38, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Now notice this, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him. And in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. Remember when they made the golden calf and named it Jehovah? That's a sort of a rejection, see? And he reminds them of that. Your forefathers rejected Moses. Verse 41, at that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and rejoicing in the works of their hands, of their own hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as is written in the book of prophets. It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Molech and the star of the god Ramphe, the images which you made to worship, I also will remove you beyond Babylon. And so Stephen reminds the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem in that first century era, just after the birth of the church, he reminds them that the Jewish forefathers have been spiritually rebellious against Moses and against the word of God for centuries. But all of those leaders and all of those ancestors were going through the form 
of religion. They were all bringing sacrifices. They were functioning as priests. They were going through the rituals. They were keeping the festivals, at least most of the time. Some of the centuries, it went into neglect. Now, at this point, I don't know how much these forefathers, these guys that he's hearing, are hearing him are getting stirred up. He continues talking about the fathers in verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness. This is the days of Joshua and then the days of David and then the days of Solomon in verse 47. And Solomon built a house. That's a thousand years before Stephen is speaking. And then in verse 48, he reminds them that the Most High does not dwell in houses that are made by human hands, as the prophet says, and he quotes again the Old Testament scriptures. But now go down... As you go down through this passage, you realize that he is going to turn that history of resistance. He's going to he's he's like pulling back the slingshot, the bow. He's ready to let it fly, the arrow or the the stone from the sling. He's he's building up this context, the history of Moses, the rejection of the people, God dwelling in heavens, not in a house made with hands. The house that our forefathers made. Now, verse 51, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? The answer None. They persecuted all of them. They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. He does not use the name of Jesus Christ here. He doesn't have to. He has referred back to Deuteronomy chapter 18 as the prophet that God would raise up like unto Moses. That's back in verse 37. And here he says, they killed those who had announced the coming of the righteous one. Melchizedek, Zedekiah, the Jehovah, our righteousness, the one who would come, the Messiah. These men announced the coming of the Messiah. Oh, by the way, whom you killed. Like a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, whenever it was. Wow. That's bold. That's bold. That's standing in the face of the most august body of religious Jewish leaders in the world and pointing his finger at them and telling them they are resisting the work of God. They have rejected the Messiah of Israel. They have crucified the righteous one. He's not the first who did this. Peter did the same thing back in Acts chapter 2. Whom this day you have taken and crucified. They didn't react to Peter quite the way they react to Stephen, verse 54. Now when they heard this, 
They were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. I'd like to know what that means. Does that mean they were saying they were they were saying things so fast and so loud and so angry that that's what is talking about gnashing of the teeth? Or, or is it talking about clenching the teeth so angry? They're so worked out, enraged. I don't know. But it wasn't good. Not for Stephen, anyway, in an earthly sense. They began gnashing their teeth at him. And so we have, throughout this passage of Scripture with Stephen and the council, we have these sudden turns and twists. We're, we're back in chapter 6 and, and we're reading the false accusations are coming and they're gathering witnesses and they're black. He's accusing them of black. And all of a sudden his face starts to glow and everybody's <gasps> looking at him. And that kind of subsided a little and the priest says, well, what do you have to say about that? And so he begins to preach about the Old Testament and all the narrative and a thousand years of history and what God has done. And by the way, your forefathers rejected uh, Moses and the prophets and, the, and now you are rejecting the one that the prophet said was going to come, and you've crucified him. And so they began gnashing their teeth at him, and all of a sudden, verse 55, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That's awesome. Wow. He's... He didn't know that was going to happen. But he's, his attention is averted upward. He's got these men in his face. And, and he's looking up. And he sees the glory of God. He sees Jesus Christ. I, I doubt that any of them could see it. But God gave him the ability to see into heaven. And we'll come back to that verse in a minute because there's something very curious and very powerful in that verse. But in verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice. These are the people who are hearing him and covered their ears. Oh, by the way, in verse 56, he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. All right, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man, an obvious reference to Jesus Christ, standing at the right hand of God. Oh, yeah, right. Man, they are on him now, boy. Blast. They, have, they don't need false accusation of blasphemy. They have heard what they think is blasphemy. Now they have first cause. They are all witnesses that he's worthy of dying. In the Jewish mind, to say that anyone is on a par of equality with God is a blasphemy. So they cry out with a loud voice in verse 57. They cover their ears and rush at him with one impulse. Isn't that what we do when somebody says something we don't want to hear? You ever see, none of your children ever did that, I'm sure. It's going to make it go away if I do this, right? It's like the ostrich burying its head in the sand. Folks, when we give people the truth, it doesn't matter whether they cover their ears or not. The truth remains the truth. The truth will stir men's hearts either for or against Christ. 
So they rushed at him with one impulse. They grab him. They may be starting to beat him. They may be punching him. We don't know what's going on. They rush at him with one impulse. They drive him out of the city, which I think means pushing and shoving. Maybe they're dragging him, but they're driving him out of the city. This is exactly what the Nazarenes had done with Christ at Nazareth. They drove him out of the city, took him over to the edge of the cliff, and they were going to throw him off which is quite often how they stoned people in those days. They would drop someone off of a precipice, and if the drop didn't kill them, then they would throw stones down upon them. And the, the height from which the stones came down really did a number on the person who had been thrown off the cliff. That's what they did with Christ. Well, these men take him outside of the city, and wherever they took him, they begin to stone him. These, the, 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 the object was to take rocks big enough to crush the skull. That's the idea. And there were witnesses of all of this, and they laid aside their robes at the feet of the young man named Saul. It's a lot of work to pick up stones and throw them hard enough to kill somebody. You've got to take your coat off while you do it. So they're taking their coats off and laying them down at the feet of someone named Saul. And in verse 59, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord. And he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Unlike Jesus, he was not able to give up his own spirit, but he asked God to receive it. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Now, I don't know if I'd have enough grace to pray for my enemies like that. I'm sure the grace is there. I don't know if I would be strong enough to avail myself of it. But Stephen was full of grace to the end. And in that itself, he condemned his condemners. He manifested grace to the very last breath. The story ends there. But just think about the fact that as that last period falls at the end of verse 60, you have a crowd of dozens of people who have probably been followed out of the city by thousands. There's a ruckus and an uproar going on, and, and these men, these leaders of Israel, these spiritual leaders of Israel have taken rocks, and they have crushed someone with rocks. And at the end of the account, there's a dead man covered at least in part with a pile of rocks. And when something like that is over, there's a very awkward lull. Did these men have the wherewithal to look one another in the eye because of what they had done? Was there any in the crowd who had any remorse for what they had done? Were any of them embarrassed over what they had done? In front of probably hundreds or thousands of people in the city who have seen them do this. Where this the story doesn't tell us any of those things. But as that story ends, you have hundreds of people standing there around a dead body. It's worth giving that some thought. There's one last thing I want to point out, and this back in verse 30, uh, 56. I mentioned a minute ago, ago that we would come back to it. 
when Stephen gazed into heaven in verse 55, he saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then in verse 56, he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, other passages in the New Testament tell us that when Jesus went to heaven, what did he do at the right hand of God? He sat down. Other representations of Christ in the New Testament, in his ascended glory, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. In fact, we are there with him in Christ, in that amazing spiritual unity that we have with Christ But here, Jesus was standing up. Now, I don't, I don't know how much to make of this, but there are, you will find commentators that deal with this. And the, the, the general thought is that Jesus was standing up because he cares about what happens to his people. And he was standing up to welcome Stephen home. Now, I, I don't know. The text doesn't say that, does it? But it's the only place in Scripture after Christ's ascension where we see Jesus Christ standing. It has to be significant. And I think, ultimately, it's incredibly touching because he cares for every thing that happens to us. Isn't that amazing? God gave Stephen that picture of Jesus. He's looking up at Jesus, and Jesus is standing there, ready for him. Perhaps he was simply getting Stephen ready to face what was coming. As only God can prepare us for what lies ahead. Wow, what an amazing passage of Scripture. A man who lived a very short life of ministry, but left an incredibly powerful impact and preached to the most august body of Israel's leaders since Christ. Well, God wants to use us in the same way this week. It may not be standing before an august body of PhDs, but it may be one soul in need of hearing about the righteous one and of the hope that we have in Christ. Let's go out and let's be the spokespeople that God wants us to be. And we trust that as we go through these chapters of Acts, God will enrich us in the days ahead. Let's stand. We will dismiss with prayer tonight. <clears throat> Father in heaven, thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for the way that you, in the midst of trial and test, encouraged Stephen's heart, prepared him for what he was going to endure. But thank you for the grace that you manifested in Stephen's own heart. And Father, we know that your grace is all-sufficient, and if there's ever a failure, it's our failure to take advantage of it. 
Strengthen us this day, Father. Use us as witnesses here in our Jerusalem or in our Judea or Samaria, if you take us that far this week. Lord, use us for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.